Welcome to Real Jam Radio. This is Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Jared Dubin, and he and I end up spending most of the time talking about something that has been a real interest to me. I've been thinking about a lot the last week or so, which is the present and future of cap space and how teams are built, how that can, should, and already has changed free agents, trades, being a facilitator, all of that. And it's a really fascinating conversation. We go through a lot of different examples of things that worked and didn't work. And I'm really happy with kind of where we ended up going with the conversation. We talked about some some of the ideas of, of how general majors, how front offices can learn from what has happened so far. Episode is brought to you by FanDuel. And episode runs well over an hour. Lots of great stuff in here. I hope you enjoy. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me, man. Always a good time. I thought about a lot of different things to discuss with you, and I brought this up to you last night, but one of the ideas that I thought would be a good starting point is, and uh, John Hollinger wrote about this recently at The Athletic, is the idea of whether, and I want to go through some angles on this, cap space in the new kind of new CBA, new overall NBA paradigm, whether cap space provides less utility to the teams that have it now than they did before. Before we get into the specifics, do you think that that general concept is valid? I think it is. And it's. I think this is also something that we talked about um, when I did your podcast, not this summer, but the summer before in connection with that was the summer where the Knicks signed Evan Fournier and Kemba Walker and like re-signed Derek Rose and Nerlens Noel and Alec Burks on these deals that were like, you know, two years with a player option or, or sorry, a team option or, or a non-guarantee on the final year. And we were thinking about that in connection with like the best players tend to not reach free agency anymore. So you might need two or three or four of these like mid-tier size contracts to aggregate so you can get them in a trade. And that was something that like we thought was maybe coming down the pike. And I think it sort of has come out that way where, you know, a lot of times it's the best guys are not reaching free agency. And if you want to get them, you kind of have to do it in a trade. And we've even seen guys will sort of resign with teams that they don't even necessarily want to be there and just ask out later on. Uh, like we saw that with Bradley Beal to maybe a certain extent. That's kind of what Damian Lillard did because, you know, he wanted to stay in Portland, but he also very clearly wanted the Blazers to pursue a different path than the one that they were on and that you know didn't happen in the interim since he signed his extension so I, I do think that it's pretty valid like i've always said going back a long time that cap space isn't just about signing free agents it's about affording yourself flexibility you can extort teams for draft picks you can play facilitator and get paid to rent out some of your cap space you can do lopsided trades you could sign and trade someone into your cap space like there are a lot of things to do but i do think it has maybe less utility than it did before certainly less than when it was like we're going to open up three max spots and sign lebron way and bosh exactly and so i think the place to start is the is the quote the, the lebron way and bosh thing of like is cap space a viable way to get one of those landscape changers superstars and there are situations where it has happened Kawhi leonard signed with the clippers with cap space lebron james signed with the lakers with cap space but and, and i mean Kyrie and kd it, it ended up functioning a little bit different mechanically but functionally that's what they did and so it does happen like there there it, there are circumstances where it does but two things one it's relatively rare and and two, I think that's only really relevant for a certain subset of team. Like we, you know, the, I brought up these 
four examples. Well, two of them went to a New York City area team. Two of them went to an LA area team. And not every superstar wants to go to those places, but you know, I think Capspace has a different level of value for those major markets and to some extent the, the the lesser one. But and I think Fred Van Vliet is instructive here. If you're willing to train your sights on players who are more like the second to fourth best player on a good team. And I love Fred Van Vliet, but that's more of what he is. Like best player in a, best player on a great team is just not the type of player that he has been. I think those players are available. And this year is relevant for that too, because you know, I brought up Van Vliet, who of course changed teams. But also, even though none a, a number of other guys didn't through free agency, it doesn't appear that Jeremy Grant or Kyle Kuzma or Christoph Porzingis, who opted in and then was traded and extended, were so set on their current teams that they would not have moved for a competitive off. Like they were they were gettable in a sense, even if they ended up they ended up not going changing teams through that method. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And also just if you're willing to overpay a little bit for one of those guys, you can get them, I think, sure. relatively easily. And I think we've seen that in the past. We saw it like Van Vliet is probably not going to be a $43 million a year player over the next three years just because players of his size tend not to age all that well. But he is a good player. You know, let's say he's like a $32 million a year player. Like, does it matter that much that the Rockets overpaid him? Like, they're not competing for the title this year. They're trying to, like, be a real basketball team. And they got themselves a point guard who, like, knows exactly what to do and where to be and will be able to direct the offense and give them a real look at the young guys that they've drafted over the last few years and will sort of help set a tone on defense. Like, it doesn't matter all that much that they probably overpaid for three years of Fred Van Vliet. Or you look at Indiana, where they gave Bruce Brown essentially a version of the the deal that J.J. Redick signed with the Sixers back in the day, where he got like one year, $23 million or whatever it was. Bruce got two years, $45 million, but the second year is a player option. And like, is a he team, a 22? A option. Uh, sorry, a team option. Yes. Is is he a $22.5 million a year player? Like, I am the single highest person on Bruce Brown anywhere in America that is not in his family. And no, he's not like <laughs> a $22.5 million a year player, but he's a 15 to 18 or so million dollar a year player. And if, you know, they paid a little bit more to get a guy that fits them really well, they have to hit the salary floor anyway. Like I said with Van Vliet, he's going to help like professionalize the team. He's a really good fit with their best players and with their their young players like why not overpay by a little bit especially if you're only doing it for a year two years like as long as you're not committing like you know max money over four years to one of these guys it's it's not that that bad if you're overpaying by a little bit i don't think there's also the idea and fred van vliet jeremy grant are not russell westbrook but the idea that nate has articulated well is if a player is worth or close to worth the money that he's being paid in the current year generally speaking there will be at least a potential a couple potential trade partners who don't really care about the future who don't think about oh the last year of this contract is gonna suck and so they'll you can have interest and so like for example portland with jeremy grant like i don't love the overall number there he got a lot more than I necessarily expected, even if the mock-off season got in that direction. But I also think that Portland, unless there's a serious injury, will not be left holding the bag unless they want to. Like they're they they will have outs here if they if they're interested in that, whether it occurs six months from now, 18 months from now, wherever. And that is a consideration too, is that and, and Van Vliet having that team option for the third year is really interesting because that that means theoretically they could either, you know, use that as a mechanism to do something really different, 
or they could, you know, opt him out and agree to a contract that is more, that is a lower annual value, depending on where all these other guys are and everything else. And so the idea, and there's that flexibility with Bruce Brown and the Pacers too, which is you give them this money, you engender some goodwill. It's so much easier in the NBA world to step down a player's salary than to step it up. And that's why we're running into all these issues with DeMontis Sabonis and Markin and all these other guys, even if the CBA, the new CBA is more flexible. So if you have the money, give them, give them more now. Maybe you engender some goodwill. Now we don't generally see those guys be like, oh, thank you so much team that didn't draft me that I didn't, you know, that I don't have this kind of history with. I'm going to take a huge discount for you in the future. But you've also, you also have them on your books. You have sufficient bird rights to retain them and then you can work from there. I think there's also so two things here. One is that I think we need to adjust our understanding of what like $32 million a year is in the NBA. Um, Like just as an example, Jeremy Grant's making $32 million a year. That's like a little less than 25% of the salary cap at this point. But the cap is going to go up 10% of the year every year. That's more than what his raises are going to be. His contract is never going to be a larger percentage of the cap than it is this season. So like if in three years, the Blazers are like, or two years even, the Blazers are like, all right, we're going to trade Jeremy Grant. He might be making 20% of the cap at that point. And that's, you know, that's not terrible. Even though his the, the value, the dollar value of his contract will have gone up and the average annual value by that point will be higher because I would imagine, I don't think it's a straight 32 million each year. I would imagine it's got the the raises in there. I don't know yeah, exactly. Uh, so yeah. it, it's out now. So the unfortunate thing for Portland is that because of the Matisse-Thibel thing, they because they matched on him, they couldn't front load it, which would have meant that Grant could have, it could have gotten down into like the 25 million year range. But instead it is going up. It's 27 and then the, the player option will be 36. And what, 36 million, five years from now, the cap is going to be like 170, 180 million dollars. Right. Something like that. Like that's not, like I think we need to get over the sticker shock like this was when somebody before free agency there was a rumor that like the Pacers were going to give Bruce Brown 20 million dollars a year they obviously wound up giving him a little bit more than that but only on a two-year deal and somebody was saying to me on Twitter like that's just way too much and I was like well yeah it sounds like that because seven years ago the cap was 70 million dollars and now it's 133 million dollars or something like that it's literally almost doubled a 20 million dollar a year contract this year is the equivalent of signing like four for 45 in 2016 like that's it's just not that big of a deal to sign these guys for that much money it's like back-end starter high-end bench player money which you know is kind of what those kind of guys should get yeah it's it's a great point and the the calibrations will need to continue to change because even if the cap doesn't rigidly go up 10 percent a year it's going to be going up roughly in that vicinity and so the the not only are the expectations going to have to shift they're going to have to keep shifting and understanding where these things are going to go and so i i mean a lot of these contracts are going to look more reasonable and even though like i'm not the biggest fan of the deandre hunter extension back when that was signed but like it's not going to be catastrophic for the hawks other than their overall books and actually at some point i will go i may end up it may end up being a piece like i hadn't realized how screwed up the hawks books are now after the dejounte murray extension um, i don't think we'll go into that unless you really want to but like they they're still in trouble long term but so that's dejounte's extension by the way is like extremely affordable extremely reasonable like, it's the it's the death by a thousand cuts like the dallas Mavericks 
Mavericks dealt with recently where when you have a bunch of guys that aren't that great making between well under the current rules between like 16 and 25 million then it can be a big problem so like for example the Hawks are they're going to be over the tax or they're going to be like like without a subsequent move they're probably going to be over the tax next year even with like with Murray's extension which is as you said very reasonable just because they have these too many of these like 20 million dollar a year players that, that aren't and if you're good enough of course you'll tolerate that uh, that's not a problem but getting to get that but I want to I want to go in a different direction which is so you brought up and I'm so happy you did the idea that cap space can be a lot more things so we've talked about kind of two branches one of them is high level free agents that is unless you're a major market and maybe you know something that's hard but the really unless you're the Lakers for the most part other sure. teams have been able to do it time and again but for the most part the Lakers are the only team that consistently is able to get in the mix for the top free agents on the market um, except for the Heat have done it multiple times when not even having cap space right like they signed arguably the best player on the market without having cap space twice in three years when they did it with jimmy with jimmy butler and kyle lowry exactly and so there are there are some exceptions but generally speaking if we're thinking about you know running 26 28 of the 30 teams in the league and even though theoretically adding seattle adding vegas will change some things i don't think they move into that except i i think they they move into the top half of the league for various things but they don't move into the like oh yeah absolutely going to um gonna gonna get those kind of free agents we'll see i i would be very interesting maybe maybe vegas would if that's the team that lebron buys into potential but as you mentioned there are a lot of other ways to use cap space and i think one of the biggest storylines to me of the 23 offseason is the salary dump slash facilitator path and so i think of these as two things but they're very they're they're siblings so one of them is the and then the difference is whether this element of the transaction is the transaction or whether it is a making the bigger thing happen. So for example, Davis Bertans to the Thunder, so the Thunder moved up from 12 to 10. That was the transaction. There was not anything else there. So that was a salary dump and their perk was that and I think they may have gotten some seconds out of the deal. Whereas like when when you mentioned it like when the Heat got Jimmy Butler or when the Warriors needed to clear tax room so they could get D'Angelo Russell in a sign-in trade, the Grizzlies in the in that case with Iguodala and and, and then there was uh, I try to remember who the third team was in the in the Heat deal. You probably remember that. Um, they those were straight facilitators. So it's like you're not getting the player. You, the the original deal did not necessarily involve you, but you got a benefit there. And something that really struck me about this offseason, and it largely dovetails off of what happened. Oh, was were the Clippers the facilitator? I think they were in that deal in the in the Butler deal. Um, anyway, uh, but so the idea I brought up Bertans before. Uh, Bertans deal the Victor Oladipo trade where they basically got a couple of seconds and um uh, there are a few others this year like the return on taking on a a suboptimal salary even if it's not like horrendous money that return has gotten significantly lower over the last couple yeah like the pistons got what like two future seconds to take on joe harris um i mean i guess even like I'm trying to think like there was some stuff about like what the Knicks would uh, have to do to give up Evan Fournier. And now there's something like because he's expiring virtually, they're like valuing him as an actual asset because it's not. Oh, we'll we'll get into that more than one year of the money, which your mileage may vary on that, such as mine does. But yeah, I mean, to to be the dumping ground, you can get something, but you're not going to get a lot unless, like you said, it's to clear space for something else. Like if 
someone was going to like if let's say things had gone differently and the Lakers were going to clear cap space to sign Kyrie then getting someone to take you know whoever from their books might have yielded something because the move they were making wasn't clearing that player it was getting Kyrie and they needed to do this first to facilitate that that's that's an example that didn't actually happen but you would get more to participate in a transaction like that than you would to just like we're gonna dump some of this money and give you a couple seconds to take it exactly and so you those deals just aren't producing the same return and that meant that like my favorite of that genre this year was the spurs with reggie bullock where reggie bullock is a totally reasonably good player like i mean 10.5 million he can't make shots the first month month and a half of the season which is unfortunate but he can defend reasonably well he generally shoots well enough to get guarded money is you know well well within the ballpark for a guy who either you know who was a significant part of the rotation i mean it's well below starter money and the the spurs you know the, the the most juicy thing they got back was that potential pick swap with the maps which is really fun um thinking about that moving forward just because the optimism with san antonio when Binyama becomes the player we all hope that he does far from a certainty but let's let's hope that it happens and so that sort of a circumstance is and so for me why i like the block deal more and their parallels with um, the way that utah what utah got in the gobert deal which was obviously a much bigger transaction but they might be able to reflip block and get something whether that is as a mechanism for taking on money for 24 25 and beyond or just because hey he can help somebody and maybe a team trades a guy who's hurt or something else for him so from san antonio's perspective it was really no sweat off their backs they got somebody who can actually help them but who could also help somebody else in time but they didn't get a ton like it's not like they got they came out of that like you know like bandits or anything like that they just they did well and that was anomalous yeah the the fact that they can flip him again potentially like at the deadline was gonna be the point that i brought up with him like if ever you can get one of these guys that still actually has value as a player but their contract is just too onerous for the team that has them for whatever given reason and i don't even necessarily think that that was was true of bullock it's just that Dallas uh, needed to maneuver in a certain way to be able to do the sign and trade for Williams and afford the Matisse Thibel offer sheet that actually got matched. Um, which, you know, maybe you probably should have known that was going to happen and uh, you didn't necessarily need to dump Reggie Bullock's money and you could have just kept him as a rotation player. But, you know, I, I haven't been the biggest fan of a lot of Dallas moves over the last couple of years, except for like basically what they did around the draft this year, including the Davis Bertans move that you mentioned a few minutes ago, where they moved down two spots, got the same guy they were going to pick at number 10 and, and used that to dump Bertans' money. And then they used the trade exception they generated out of that deal to acquire the i think it was the 24th pick or 25th pick whatever it was with omax prosper and they got rashawn holmes out of it that was like a good little bit of maneuvering there and other than that the the dallas roster moves over the last couple of seasons i haven't been the biggest fan of yeah we're largely in the same boat there yeah i I mean especially only moving down from 10 to 12 to to offload bertans who was I, i think there is a way that he can rehab his value but not get to positive probably you know the idea that he, he can still help out a team, but he's not going to be a 10 million plus player. And Bertans has a partial guarantee for 24-25. So that will be on, presumably it's 
OKC's books, at that point, maybe it gets stretched or something else. But like, it's still, you know, $5 million is, is something material for a guy who's already being overpaid at 17. And so to do that, and I mean, I don't know for sure, A, if Derek Lively was the guy that the Mavs would have taken at 10, or B, whether he would have been the right pick at 10. Like that, that's going to take a little bit more time to evaluate. But generally speaking, if you only move down two spots, then it's not from one to three or from two to four or something like that. You probably did pretty well to get something of real value, which they did. And well, sometimes if you move down from one to three, you can pick up uh, the future <laughs> Lakers first and the best player in the draft. Um, Certainly possible. Yeah, that's generally not what happens most of the time. Generally, yeah, and, and so you have you have those, and so we think about the kind of the bigger the bigger path. So we talked about free agency, talked about the facilitator, and then the other one, which I don't want to dwell on as much, in part because it's all in the abstract, is the idea of like it's not rigidly like you take on bad money, like you know you're extorting the team. It's more of what Utah did with John Collins, where player who can help you, but you you're like it's kind of like you're signing them through free agency, except that you're using cap space instead, and they're already under contract. And those happen every so often and from utah's perspective like you those transactions are really hard to evaluate because it's also like your fit with the team and everything else but it is a potential way to use cap space that can help you out is just player x is already on the books and that's an easier way to get them than matching salary or something yeah when you can identify the team that's like under a mandate to get under the tax uh, and is willing to give away pretty good players for not much and you can be the team that takes advantage of that that's a pretty good deal well, another one like that was uh, Monte Morris with the Wizards, who, I mean, I was surprised. I, I think Morris is a good player, and it didn't seem like the Pistons had to give up much to make it happen. Yeah, well, they give up two seconds, right? Two I, future seconds? I believe it was two future seconds. Yeah, so basically they got Monte Morris and Joe Harris and just like added them to their roster because they got two future seconds to take Harris and gave up two future seconds to get Morris. So they just like got those guys. They did. And both of them are expiring contracts and uh, could help them. I mean, how much, one of the unusual dynamics of 23 was these teams that weren't good last year that are still going to rely on young players, but want to improve. And so that changed, that changed some of the dynamics a little bit, but the last kind of element here that I want to discuss, and we'll get into the expiring contracts derby in a second, is that for a variety of reasons, and this is now, I think it's less likely to change than I thought it was going to be because of the, the, the way the cap is going to be going up pretty consistently rather than a spike is that there aren't many truly terrible contracts around the NBA. Like there are certainly players that are below water, plenty of them. But the, oh God, this is a huge problem. Like I think back to the Richard Lewis for Gilbert Arenas trade, like, you know, those sorts of deals. Like there aren't as many of those right now in part because there have been fewer really long contracts given out by players with shaky track. It's like you think about D'Angelo Russell only got two years this year and a, a number of different other ones. And so the have to get out from it peril urgency just hasn't been as 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 prominent the last couple of years. Well, I think a lot of that is because most of the deals in the league right now were signed in an environment where the cap like barely moved for a three year span. That, oh, that's a really good point. Yeah. Um. So basically, the next wave of deals is going to be when we're going to see some of those that you know are are really really onerous. Like you're seeing that with some of the 
extensions guys are signing where the back end of those deals is they're making like 60 something million dollars a year in 27 28 or whatever those i think will be the deals that tend to age poorly like you know right now obviously we don't think this is just an example and i don't think it's going to happen but if devin booker had injury issues the same way that john wall did then he like all of a sudden the supermax extension that he signed last offseason which by all accounts looks like it will be well worth it but if you all of a sudden and you get and John Wall looked like he was going to be worth it at the time too. Like all of a sudden, you get one of those guys; they start getting hurt, and it's like, oh my god, this guy is making sixty-six million dollars four years from now. What are we going to do with this contract? That's, I think, what we'll start to see when these deals get signed this year, next year, the year after that, because they're coming in the environment where the cap now is actually going up. Whereas, like you know, like I said, the, the cap basically doubled over a seven-year span, but most of that doubling came in the last two years because from you know 1920 2021 21 22 the cap was pretty consistent in that three-year span because of the pandemic they sort of like froze the growth and now it's probably going to be going up you know eight eight percent ten percent whatever it is over the next few years yeah i hadn't thought about it that way but it is a fantastic point and it's so that that will shift things and you know like for example jordan Poole's contract was traded as negative value this year so there certainly are are situations like that that exist and unfortunately minnesota might end up being the might end up being the kind of the front end of this where like gobert's contract doesn't look fantastic could look better in a year we'll see we'll see what happens with wolves but like Carl Anthony Towns getting the 35% max, which doesn't even kick in until 24, 25. If you need to put as much around him, I mean, I think that last year was kind of a, like he's had a low watermark for the last little bit, but if this year isn't significantly better, and this is why I think Minnesota should have been more seriously considering trading him is like, I would worry a little bit about where things might go, but there's also the fundamental problem with Minnesota where even if he's very good, like their overall books are hard to maintain. Yeah. They're only paying something like 330. $30 million to Towns, Gobert, and Nazareth over the next three years. So... You know, that, that doesn't seem like a problem to me at all. And um, I found the, the exact numbers, by the way. The cap went up $14 million over the previous four years combined and went up $13 million this year alone. Mm-hmm. So that will tell you why we don't have really any of those, oh, my God, that deal is such a disaster deals on the books right now. It's because of that figure right there, basically. So then I think a natural transition there is something you've invoked before, which is, OK, so we're, we're, we're working from a general paradigm where even though there is still there are still times that having cap space is useful that there are fewer now than there were previously in most circles the following question is well then then what now what is the new paradigm and at, there was a second where it looked like it might be this real extreme with eric gordon you know like if theoretically the clippers had guaranteed his contract and these you know walking trade exceptions for these super expensive teams and whoever's there and then some of that will happen i, I mean inevitably some of that will but the other way that that works is well if you're not if free agent if, if top players aren't changing teams via free agency and typically they are not then they're changing via trade and one of the elements and this is of course a huge part of the Damian Lillard negotiations in particular but potentially the James Harden ones too 
is non-negative salary matching. And the easiest way to do that is, I mean, if you have it, is good players on fair contracts. Like, But but usually you want to keep those two. Like, that's just the way the league works. The second is players that don't kill you that are on expiring contracts because then the team can do whatever they want. It opens up flexibility. And the challenge for Miami in the Lillard stuff, among others, including their obligations with first-round picks, is they don't really have many of those players. They have guys like Duncan Robinson. They have guys like Tyler Hero, who your mileage may vary on how negative or positive their contracts are, but they aren't expiring anytime soon. And so that is creating a circumstance where it is harder to negotiate with Portland. Yeah, I mean, the big expiring they can use is is Kyle Lowry, but that doesn't get you enough salary to make the deal work. It would still have to be either Hero or Robinson would have to be in the deal because everybody else on their team makes like less than three and a half million dollars a year or something like that other than obviously uh jimmy and bam who are not going to be in the deal so it's like even if you put lowry in as an expiring to help provide some sort of cap relief like you still need hero or robinson or both if they're going to make you take like yusuf nurkic in the deal too and then like then it becomes about well what can they get for hero if they don't want him or what can, can they get anything for robinson if they don't want him and that's obviously complicates things quite a bit that's why you know to circle back to what i mentioned at the beginning when we talked about it with the knicks a couple of years ago it was that they had instead of like these 20 30 million dollar a year guys it was a bunch of guys making like 12 to 18 million dollars all on mostly short-term deals fournier's was the longest where it was a three year with a team option for a fourth. The other guys were, you know, two years with a team option for a third or a non-guaranteed third or whatever it was. And not a single one of those deals wound up being good and they didn't get basically anything out of them. They had to, you know, they declined Rose's option and they had to pay the, uh, the Pistons last offseason and the yeah the Pistons last offseason to take on Noel and Burks and Kemba Walker so none of them worked out but that was sort of the idea behind it and I think it does make sense to have salaries in that range if you want to do the aggregating kind of thing Sa- salaries that are mid-tier and on the shorter side obviously make things easier but to go back to what you said actually about some of these expensive teams and the walking trade exceptions I'm kind of surprised that we didn't see more of that like why would the Celtics in Instead of getting, like, what did they get? Uh, like, two second round picks for in the Grant Williams deal? Why would they not just say, you know what, we're going to hang on to Grant Williams for four years, 53 million, um, and trade him at the deadline when you can almost certainly get more for him than that, uh, for him on that deal? You know, like, or why wouldn't, like. Or they could have um, taken Bullock, you know, like something, something yeah. like that. So I, I think the reason why is it's one of the less intended consequences of the salary for, and that was something we didn't probably emphasize enough in the cap space thing is also the idea that some of this money is burning hole in their pocket and that was part of the intention of the four is that because the salary four kicks in right before the start of the regular season it means that it's harder to do a deal in season harder not impossible to do a deal in season that sheds significant salary if your goal is to you know cut a couple mil yeah no problem there there will always be teams that can facilitate that and there will be there are trade exceptions and everything but what i think we're going to see and the celtics might be the example here we're going to see fewer teams teams start seasons with a overall level of spending that their owner is uncomfortable with because it's going to be harder to get from that to 
should to say, oh, I know we're 15 million over now and you you don't want to be more than 10 million over. I'm just using those as abstract numbers, not specific. Well, we'll be able to do this. And they still will. You know, like, for example, the Spurs still have roughly 10 million in space. And, and also the salary matching rules are so much more flexible now that like there actually are pathways to this. But I think teams are going to, general managers are going to be more reluctant to make that their, their expectation. I think they're actually going to be too conservative on that front. Yeah, I mean... I still am on the they should just be willing to pay for good basketball teams. Absolutely. Kind of I mean, th- front. But I think we know that most of the owners don't actually reside in that area. They really don't. And and that's one of the more bizarre elements of the Celtics offseason. And I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about that in, in different forms. But, you know, a lot of these teams that are at the higher end, I mean, Denver, it was a circumstance beyond their control for the most part because of bird rights and everything else. And like they just won championships, so we're thrilled for them for that. But like Denver lost two rotation players, one essential, one valuable in Brown and Green, and didn't really replace them at all. And like there, there was a little bit we know like with the new rules and everything of a talent drain from the best teams in the league and i mean the clippers never got to fully actualize what they had but they lost eric gordon and didn't replace him with anybody who's like i mean they event i guess they got kg martin but it wasn't in that transaction necessarily they used the uh, trade exception they had from reggie jackson but so like there there was more of a talent drain from the best teams in the league than i expect yeah, i'm curious what you think i thought of this in relation to uh the nuggets losing bruce brown um maybe last week or the week before so basically they were limited in what they could offer him this year because he was a you know a non-bird right free agent so he could only get like a 7.8 million dollar starting salary basically on a one plus one and then decline the option and then sign essentially like a four-year 53 million dollar deal or whatever it is the value essentially of the mid-level as an early bird free agent next offseason now that did he didn't sign the one plus one with denver he signed a one a two minus one with indiana so let's say that indiana declines that team option next year brown can now go back and sign for the actual mid-level with denver next offseason the same deal that he could have signed as an extension but will have can do that having made like three times as much money in the one year interim than he could have made if he had stayed in Denver this year. I'm very curious to see if that actually happens. The potential risk there, though, is will Denver be able to use the full middle level? My instinct is no, but we'll have to see where the numbers end up. Oh, sure. I just like it's just interesting that that's like theoretically possible Mm -hmm. that he could get essentially three times the money to go and sign the same deal with the same team next offseason if a certain scenario plays out. Yeah, that is I hadn't thought about it, but that is, you know, the the possibility of, you know, just like uh, you can you can get what you want. and, And that does mean that he's not on the Nuggets for this year and their championship contender and everything else. But I mean, like, as I always say, players can choose and prioritize whatever they want. He's a second round pick who has made like $13 million in his whole career and is going to make one and a half times that amount this year. Like, good for him, you know? Mm-hmm. So the question that like, we're kind of getting into here and we talked about expiring contracts is where does this go from this point? So like if you're running the Utah Jazz and we've already seen some of the moves that Danny Ainge has done, how does the situation that we're in where top free agents don't usually t- change teams by free agency, that facilitators aren't really getting paid as much, does that really change the way you think about how you build your roster, the contracts you give out? I don't think it does specifically for the Jazz because they have that treasure trove of draft picks and that's 
teams that are not so asset rich might be the ones that are a little bit more affected and it might have to change the way they do business because like Utah, you know, the they have really good front court players. They they drafted or they got Kessler in the the Rudy Gobert trade last year. They have Larry Markinen. They just brought in John Collins. Like they have Kelly Olynyk is still a good player. Their guards are pretty good in Jordan Clarkson and Colin Sexton and uh, Taylor Horton Tucker, but those guys aren't, I don't think like the, you know, the, the top level creator just that you really need to be a really good team. And that's fine for them because they have a good enough base of talent elsewhere. And those guys are good players that they can just be like, you know what, we'll keep these guys on pretty good contracts and we can use our draft picks to get like the really high level creator guard type. It's the teams that don't have that stockpile that need to get a little bit more creative is sort of where I come down. I think that your the general approach needs to be the same. And the, part of the reason that I wanted to mention the Jazz is that they also could be not at the forefront because we've already seen a couple, but they're, they'll be in the, the other way to use cap space that is becoming be more prevalent over this year and the next couple is the renegotiation and extension. And presumably the Jazz, like it's looking like they're going to have plenty of cap space in 24-25, though their draft picks will use up some of that space. Well, they'll probably end up incorporating part of that to give Markinen more money in 24-25 and then working off that. And I'm thrilled about that for, for players because they could get more money sooner and I, I probably support that as an idea. It is generally leads to kind of weaker quality teams because you're using that as a retention tool rather than an addition tool. But what is just so fascinating to think about this moving forward is that I think teams are going to be more aggressive using the renegotiation and extension because players aren't available in, in, through free agency, which leads to fewer free agents like it's it's sort of the it's you could think of it as a vicious cycle or virtuous cycle depending on how you feel about these things but the idea that you want you don't want your players to hit free agency if no one else is hitting free agency because then your players would be the bell of the ball as opposed to just being a guy yeah i mean it makes sense but you also like i think you have to remember you have to be under the cap to do the renegotiation and extension right so the teams that are already really good are significantly less likely to be able to do that um so it is more going to be teams you know like utah with uh they did it with clarkson this offseason and i think that deal is great for them you know he got whatever it was an extra seven or eight million dollars or whatever it is this year and then the the two years remaining on that deal he's getting like 14 million that's like (laughs) that's a great value for a player of his caliber over the ensuing two years of the deal um I thought that maybe the Kings would do something vaguely similar with the Sabonis renegotiation and extension, but I don't think that they did. I think they yeah. sort of they bumped him up and he gets raises over the ensuing final few years. Yeah, basically, it's, like, and I think I'm glad you brought up the difference because I was going to do that too, which is the renegotiation extension from a team perspective, which you and I, you know, we, we, we used to write for mid-level exceptional. We think about a lot of things from the perspective of a general manager is that the value of a renegotiation extension in most circumstances is you have this cap space that doesn't really have much of a purpose. Robert Covington was a fantastic example of this those years ago. I think it was in 17. where or, uh, Miles Turner last Miles year. Miles Turner last year, where they don't really have anything to do with it. So you give the guy a bonus a balloon payment now and in exchange for that you basically negotiate it as a contract and so Clarkson you brought up Clarkson so Clarkson he got roughly 40 million in 
new money over two new years, but they gave him, let's call it 10 million of that 40 million in a year that he was already under contract. And then in exchange, they got those years later. So I think that pathway, it can be a very good one if, you know, it's 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 kind of the perfect storm. If everything falls right, like you, you have the cap space, you have a player who's in this boat and you could do that payment. And in exchange, you get that discount in the future. The, the bigger problem for like the way things are going, but agents are going to love this, especially when you think about how agents are paid, where it's like, you know, you get the, if you're the one who negotiates that contract, then you get money off of it. And so they, you know, you don't have to worry about your client firing you in the next year is Sabonis. And I think this is what would happen potentially with marketing, though, if Danny Ainge is doing the negotiation, he usually handles things a little bit differently, which is... No, we're going to use the renegotiation as a mechanism to sign you to a rich contract earlier. Not not getting getting a concession, but just as a mechanism to do that. And so with Sabonis, he got more now, and then they built off that, used the new lax extension rules. And so for Sabonis, it's such an obvious yes. Like there's the idea, you know, and this, this ties in with sort of the why I thought the Thunder did poorly in the Bertans deal was like, if you're doing a transaction that is good for you, but the other team is head over heels, you should probably rethink it at least a little bit. And that's how the Kings with Sabonis is, where it's like, does it make sense for the Kings? Yeah, it's it's a reasonable thing. But does it make sense for Sabonis? Yes, of course. Like, oh, you can, you can lock in all this money like really early. You could do all that. You mitigate a ton of risk. By all means, you know, do that. Do it going forward. And for a player who had a wonderful year, who was a huge part of the King's success and hopefully will be moving forward. But now he, you know, now he's already, he's making star money and he doesn't have to worry about that. So one path that, that, you know, balloon payment and get a thing, get it, get it forward. Like Miles Turner did, like Jordan Clarkson did. That makes sense. The Sabonis and my theory of it being Markkanen, that one, I think that's going to lead to more misuse of, let's call it misuse of leverage rather than mistake. We'll have to see how the contract's bear out but i like i i don't know why or how the kings were so scared that you can still offer more than anyone else and if he ends up making an all-nba team you can offer a whole hell of a lot more than everyone else so are you really that scared in a circumstance where not that many teams have cap space and it's been a long time since like a great team had cap space are you that scared of him going to the brooklyn nets or going to the pacers or whoever i mean pacers obviously not but like i i think that they they basically said like we love this guy we want to keep him around let's just do it and that's an ownership level decision yeah i mean i th- i think it's maybe less damaging than than you do like even if you look at all the way in the out years he's making 51.2 million in 27 28 like the conservative cap projections at like no trade clause.com have it at 165 that's like 31 percent of the cap would be sabonis salary that year that's you know that's that, not horrendous that, yeah and that's a, a very conservative, I think, cap estimate because it's at like 136 this year. If it goes up 10% each of the next two years, you're already at 165, you know, and that's talking about, you know, an additional three years down the or two more years down the line. So it's entirely possible that it could be significantly less. I think the thing here is they didn't. And the reason I think the Kings were willing to do it is because the starting salary on the actual extension, I think, is less than the max that he could have signed for next offseason still, right? It's at 41.8 it, it next is, year. It is less, not dramatically less, but less. Yeah. So I think that the, the total cost over the five years is probably a bit less than the max, which is, I think, 
that and the certainty of having him under contract is probably why they were willing to do it. But I do still think it's probably a better deal for Sabonis than it is for them. Like the risk that he was going somewhere else for the four-year max next offseason, I don't think was that high. Particularly if other teams read the tea leaves the way that we do and just aren't pursuing it as aggressively. And at Sabonis, I mean, he had a wonderful, wonderful year and don't want to denigrate his contributions and what he what he's done for a successful team. But I mean, you can look at Christoph Porzingis, an entirely different player, but like if he could have gotten anything competitive, he very well might have taken that over eventually facilitating the Celtics deal. He, he might have been really excited to join the Celtics, a better team than he would have gotten to any other way. But it does seem like the market for some of these obviously good players, but non-superstars was pretty weak this year. Especially among the big men, which I think yes. is a trend that we've seen over the last few years too. Like, you know, you see like the, the guards and the wings, they, you know, get their automatic maxes, basically. Like, it wasn't all that long into free agency before like Desmond Bain and LaMelo Ball and Anthony Edwards and all these guys had gotten there. And granted, it's the rookie max, the quote unquote, the fun max for most of these guys. But Halliburton and Ball and Edwards all got the the Rose Rule max potential. They have to, you know, make all NBA or uh, win MVP or I don't know all the criteria anymore. I used to know all of them off the top of my head. But whatever it is, they got to qualify to get that five year, 260-ish million dollar deal instead of the five for 207 i think it is that bain signed for that's true and the those were quickly and for especially guys who are center only defensively you know that that's harder to play them in sequence and it it made Connolly's bet all the more compelling and surprising and weird when they got you know gobert and towns and and i think it'll work out better in 23 24 than it did in 22 23 not that it would be easy for it to work out worse like it's just there's a lot there's a lot of room to roam on the positive side there but the other kind of question that i'm that i'm lingering on in terms of like how these teams do things moving forward is how do you feel about these the the substar players so like for example one of the most interesting negotiations tightrope acts for me in the nba this coming year is going to be og and anobi where it seems abundantly clear not definitive but abundantly clear that og and anobi will hit unrestricted free agency in 2024 hitting unrestricted free agency in 2024 does not mean he's changing teams does not mean he's hitting the open market you could think about you know like zach levine or Bradley Beal in 22 who hit the open market but doesn't seem like they really ever considered anywhere else Harden didn't really either so like maybe it's a circumstance like that maybe it's not and so for Ananobi it becomes something that you and I discussed I think it was like two or three years ago which is the pre-move and then the idea is if there aren't that many teams that are going to have cap space and especially if they're not going to be good teams you're not getting that you know like Memphis Grizzlies who like made who were the who were the number two seed and then ran have 20 million or whatever else like that and especially with the way contracts for these sub stars are rising you kind of want to make it to wherever you want to be earlier and that's why the initial stuff with pascal siakam was so surprising because i think part of it was this motivation of like hey the raptors can can conceptually at least offer me more money than anyone else can but and, and so then you do the damn the torpedoes i'll sign the money with them if they give it to me and then i'll just if i want to end up somewhere else i'll do it but with og i think it's the opposite i think it's you need to get to the place first and maybe that's toronto maybe that's where he wants to be maybe that's everything else because having bird rights will be super valuable yeah i think that makes sense 
I think also a, a factor with Siakam, which I don't think I've seen anybody discuss. And I think that has sort of been, uh, you know, in the news lately, if he gets to unrestricted free agency next summer, he would be, I believe, the first guy since Bradley Beal actually eligible to get a no trade clause because mm. he will have been in the league Middle, for eight Middleton, years. Middleton could have, I believe. Um, I think he's been um, on the Bucs long enough. Yeah. No, yeah. He's been on the Bucks for at least four years for sure. So, But yeah. it's so rare. Yeah, it's it's very rare. But that is something that guys, you know, could be interested in. Like, you get to sort of control your destination on the way out. And, you know, hitting uh, unrestricted free agency with the same team that you've been with might be preferable to them as long as they have at least eight and four, eight years in the league and four years with the same team. Um, that might be preferable to them than hitting free agency somewhere else, even if they would still have their bird rights attached. doesn't apply to OG because he would only have been seven years in the league next offseason. But, yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see what happens there. And then, you know what, I had something else to say and I forgot what it was. The other thing that I wanted to mention <laughs> is the the ways that this overall balancing act can change. And so one of them, it looks like, is off the table, which is like a cap spike that leads to players evaluating the overall situation. And so it looks like that's not going to happen within the current collective bargaining agreement. The salary cap cannot go up more than 10% in any given year. So Yeah, they are determined to not allow that to happen ever again. They are. But there are still circumstances where high level, these franchise changers, league changers can hit the market. I mean, uh, whether we classify Kawhi Leonard as that, whether we classify LeBron James or James Harden as that, like some of the Jalen Brown, there's, I think it's an outside chance, but a chance that he hits unrestricted free agency next year. So that's, that's one way of doing it. The other potential shift kind of way of way of that this might end up changing is maybe it's not that you're signing the player outright. And this is more in a way like what Miami ended up doing. I think this is more with Lowry is you don't have enough cap space to sign them, but you do have enough so that the lift to make the deal happen is plausible. And the rising cap actually works well with this, where maybe it's not that you clear cap space, but it's that you have enough wiggle room under the tax, under the hard cap, because you have the potentially if that is relevant in all of your pursuits. Where with the loser salary matching rules and trades, you can do something where the other team doesn't take on a million billion dollars in obligations. You could potentially use a facilitator, especially if the cost of facilitation is down, which it is right now. And so that idea where it's not you're clearing 20 to 30 million, it's more like consistently maintaining enough wiggle room under the tax. And whether it was intentional or unintentional, I think that's what Cleveland ended up benefiting from this year, where they were able to eventually retain Karis LeVert on a pretty reasonable deal. I'm lower on LeVert than most, but then also still use the loose salary matching rules in trades, not give up that much, you know, in terms of guys that actually mattered for them and get Max Drews. And so they did that and it helped that the Heat, for whatever reason, weren't interested in retaining him. But maybe that's the other path is the like, you're not clearing cap space, but you're clearing wiggle room under the tax. Or just presenting that you have the ability to create Create it. Like, for example, um, with Jalen Brunson last offseason, the, the Knicks did try to have the Mavs do that deal as part of a sign and trade, but Dallas, for some reason, was not interested in getting anything back because they didn't want to facilitate the deal for whatever reason. But basically, they showed during the draft that they had the ability to create the room if they wanted to, to sign Brunson to whatever deal that they wanted to sign him to. And that alone is enough to sort of be able to get what you want in that type of sign and trade deal. Or if the sign and trade doesn't work, then you just create the space 
that you are able to present that you can create the space. Um, and I actually just remembered what I wanted to mention earlier now that I think about it. With the new ability for guys, anybody can sign a five-year extension Yes. now rather than just four years. I think we might see more guys sign extensions because you can give them more total money and less per year like there was a report uh you know not to keep bringing it back to the knicks they're just relevant again um there was a report earlier in the offseason that emmanuel quickly wants like five figures on an extension and that the knicks were willing to pay it there was a separate report that the knicks were willing to pay him something like 20 million dollars a year so if you take those two things together instead of four for 100 you can sign quickly to a five for 100 extension and he gets his nine figures the knicks get their 20 million dollars a year instead of 25 million dollars a year and in theory both sides are happy with that it's just it's just a little bit more of a carrot that makes it easier to sign guys that are good but not max guys the funniest part of that as things bear out i think this is a distinct possibility is that those last the, the, those fifth years end up being very team friendly when the players don't intend for it to be because it's so far out that we're you know we've talked a lot about how the, the we expect the cap to move and adapt over the next few years and so like quickly let's say he wants the hundred million that he eventually regrets that fifth year even if it's life-changing money and it probably doesn't make that much of a difference for him like in terms of like what he would have gotten versus what he has like we could see that in some of these deals where it ends up you know again we talk we usually talk about the unintended consequences as being negative for certain teams in this case it might be negative for the players and not for the teams yeah i mean that that's certainly possible i think in general like obviously you want to get as much money as you can but also getting back into free agency as soon as you can if you're good is almost always going to be beneficial for you it's what makes masai ujiri's bet on all these player options to um lower their annual value such a key one to watch as moving forward i mean they already got burned on it on fred van vliet where he you know he got out a year earlier and it's not like they used those savings to make a dramatically you know better team the outcomes weren't as good now and you could argue that the raptors you know that they uh the the last couple seasons didn't work out as well as that that's completely fair but now with og and anobi not only does the player option complicate negotiations because like you could get it in the fact but it's all like you can when he hits free agency is a little bit murkier but the lower annual value makes it harder to extend and so now the idea that you might have to see what happens in free agency is it, it puts you in a riskier footing and hilariously then they gave another player option to Jakob Pertl though his is juicy enough that I don't think it's the same decision as it is for OG and I think his contract is um like a it's like a straight 20 million a year or whatever it is yeah it's not like a rising it's a, it's or a flat, flat it's a flat 19.5 19.5 that's what it is yeah yeah um so it's a little bit different in that kind of situation but yeah I mean player ops generally the party that the option favors is gonna do like the opposite of what the other side would want them to do obviously that's like, that's the premise yes yeah like, not that not that it's always the case i mean there there are interesting exceptions like josh hart opting in to apparently facilitate though his extension is not done correct it can't be done until august that's right oh because of the timing yeah that's that's right yeah i think august 7th is uh the date when it can become official and I, but there were reports at least a couple of weeks ago or shortly in advance of free agency that he might even take slightly less than the max of i think four years 81 million is what he can extend for there were some reports that it might actually come in less than that which is uh interesting 
but he basically yeah. he did that to facilitate like the Knicks getting Dante DiVincenzo, essentially. Yeah, his his former college teammate, correct? Yeah, they uh, the Knicks just love Wildcats, Kentucky Wildcats, Villanova Wildcats. Uh, any kind of wildcats, they'll take them, apparently. Anything else? I mean, we could go in other directions if there's something you want to discuss. Um, anything else that really stands out to you about the offseason so far? Yeah, I, I, we got into them briefly, but I, I think I, I had such sticker shock so early on with the Rockets moves. And, like, I still don't think that any of them individually is all that good of value, and I don't think they're going to be that good of a team. But I understand what they're doing with, you know, the Fred Van Vliet deal and – the Dylan Brooks deal and Jeff Green and Jock Landale, um, or yeah, Landale. Um, yes. Like, I get it. Like, that team was like only technically a real basketball team last year. Like, if you watched them, it was whew, it was it was not fun to watch them because they they mostly just didn't know what they were doing. They weren't organized enough. They didn't. It was extremely difficult to figure out what they wanted to accomplish on either end of the floor and just like having to overpay for guys that like know what the hell they're doing on the court is, you know, that's, I think that's the situation that they were in. Like it was such a disaster there last year and the year before to a certain extent that they needed to overpay to bring in guys. And you can, you know, like maybe they should have targeted different guys, but they very clearly went and said, we're going to get guys that will come in, play defense and know where to be. Like they targeted Van Vliet and Brooks and Brooke Lopez were the three guys that they really targeted. And I think they, they got Van Vliet. If they were going to get only one of the other two, Lopez would have been a lot better than Brooks because like, I don't want Brooks taking shots from Jalen Green and Ahmed Thompson and Kim Whitmore and whoever else. And that's probably going to happen. But like, at least you know, like Van Vliet and Brooks are going to play really, really good, really sound defense, and they're going to turn up the level of intensity and at least on the court uh, professionalism uh, for for the team. And that like that team very, very badly needed that type of thing. And I don't think they got particularly good value. I still don't think they're going to be particularly good just because it, it's really difficult to be good when you have so many young guys playing such big minutes. Um, and then when you put so much responsibility on guys like Van, Van Vliet and Brooks who are you know, more complimentary players, I, I think it sort of stretches guys a little too thin. But the, the theory behind what they're doing makes sense because they so desperately needed to become like a real basketball team. They did. And so kind of two things that I want to I want to work on from that. So one is it is so important and the process Sixers are, are the ultimate modern example of this to put the young players that you have not only in a position to succeed, but in a position where you can get credible evaluation of them. Because yep. if you get to year <coughs> year four for Jalen Green and like, let's say whether it's when he's extension eligible next summer or a year later, when if you haven't agreed to an extension, he's a restricted frisian and you still don't know like what Jalen Green is on a good team you're in big trouble because that is where and, and there are circumstances where te- where p- p- GMs misevaluate this too of course but that is an extremely important part of this and and good putting good defenders around Alpern Shangun now you can more cohesively evaluate his defense is he good enough to be able to do that on a good team whereas if it's such a disaster that you can't evaluate whether Shangun is good enough well then how are you going to figure out his next contract how are you going to figure out whether you need to upgrade on him defensively in order to be a viable team. And so that is one really important element that Rafael Stone and probably Ime Udoka were very important at 
managing for them. The other one, I originally was very frustrated by the connected move with Dylan Brooks, where they offloaded Ty Ty Washington and Usman Garuba, who happen to be two young guys who I really like, and who maybe they're not going to be like starters or stars moving forward, but I think they can help a good team. Like, I think that's going to be Garuba's defense, Ty Ty Washington's physical tools. Like, they're they're guys that I would roll the dice on second draft and all that, and uh, them getting basically salary dumped was a surprise. But what Stone and Nudoka, probably mostly Stone in this front, evaluated is just like from a fundamental human perspective. You're bringing in at bare minimum two established players coming in. And you also have this just truckload. And they also offloaded Josh Christopher, who I'm more okay with. I'm, I used to like him, but I haven't seen as much. Where you can't play all these dudes. Mm-hmm. And you you get into a circumstance where you're also not accruing the, you're not building the asset. So if Ty Ty Washington, who I like, had another year where he's probably not in the Rockets rotation pretty clearly because they have Fred, other than with injuries, because like they brought in Fred Van Vliet, who's going to be over the top of him, who has been thankfully very durable over the course of his career. And then they still have Kevin Porter Jr. And then they, let's say they don't bring in Aaron Holiday if they keep Ty Ty. Well, okay. What other team is going to see Ty Ty Washington in five minutes every three games and say, that's our guy. We need to get there. And they get practices and everything else, but you don't actually practice that much during the season. They also have those other elements. And so from, I I am sympathetic to why Houston did that. And when you look at their roster right now, you're like, well, yeah, that makes even more sense because particularly in the front court, they still don't have enough minutes for everybody else. Because if we're, even if we're going to be charitable and say that Amen Thompson will count as a backcourt player, even though he can defend multiple positions, you still have Dylan Brooks, who's defensively versatile, but presumably you're starting Van Vliet and Jalen Green. So he'll be guarding a lot of threes. Jabari, Shangun, Jock Landale, Jayshon Tate, Tari Eason, who I love, and ideally Cam Whitmore. And so the question would be like, where in the world is Usman Gruba ever going to play? And so even though you, you sold really low on him, you weren't really ever going to sell high. Yeah, I understand it from that perspective. It still is just kind of like, just kind of stinks to like pay second round picks to get rid of recent first round picks. Exactly. Um, and, and, and OKC is going to run into this soon too. I mean, they, they already have a like the most ridiculous roster crunch I think I've ever seen at this point in the year. I think they have 21 players on their roster or something like that right and now. Not um, only do they have like, yeah, I think they have 21, but they haven't signed their two-way guys because remember two-way guys count towards roster limits, even if they things they don't count towards your eventual 15 and they have a ridiculous amount of guys that can actually play like this isn't all filler like they have probably 17 guys that i think should make like should make their team yeah, uh, I think for the Rockets, I probably would have seen if I could get anything for uh, for Kevin Porter instead of getting rid of the other young guys. But that's I fall on the the rather low end of the Kevin Porter Jr. spectrum. I would say that's totally fair. And with KPJ, I wonder where things are going to go for him, both with the Rockets and elsewhere. Because so the structure basically of his contract is that this year is fully guaranteed, and it always was in the extension that he signed. But then every other year it's like rolling guarantees it's rolling guarantees around the changeover the league year so it's around july 1st or the end of june depending on on when which year and so maybe houston you know sitting there 15 15 16 million a year they're they're happy with that they want to keep around maybe another team is interested but i don't know like it, it we haven't seen many contracts like this like it's fundamentally different than josh hartz who which
which went through a bunch of different evaluation iterations over the course of it because he had that the closest we've ever seen to a mutual option everything else so I I wonder but I've always thought I've long thought that Kevin Porter Jr. was miscast as a primary ball handler and I think he might have a good year if he gets to play with Van Vliet but we also the 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 thing that's good from a team perspective about getting this evaluation window is that we'll have a better idea one way or the other than we would have yeah I mean I think about that also in connection with the Spurs where you know they re-signed Trey Jones who I think has been like basically an okay a pretty okay point guard so far throughout his career and they gave him like what um like in hockey they have these guys they get like a bridge deal where it like takes up the remainder of their whatever it is like arbitration years or whatever and it's like they signed for two years and just get like you know two years for like a decent amount of money and it basically gives the team a couple more years to evaluate whether or not they want to give them a long-term deal but also gives that guy a little bit of security and i think that's essentially what trey jones got he got like a two-year 20 million dollar deal to for the spurs to see like hey can this guy actually be our point guard for the Wembanyama era and if he is great we can give him an extension if not we only gave him you know a two-year deal for 10 million dollars a year but also we have competent point guard play while you know our all-world superstar is developing into whatever he's going to be and something you and i have talked about a lot like you're drawing dead offensively if you don't have at least competent point guard play and especially when you have a team that's going to be built around hopefully a star big man you need someone who is going to be able to organize the offense and get them the ball where they need to get it and i think that's sort of what the spurs did with that deal for for trey jones it is and on the evaluation front san antonio preliminarily looking like they're going to have a boatload of cap space again in 24 25 even if they agree to an extension with Vassell, which they could they could do either way with that and so what that means for san antonio is it's them evaluating trey jones while also getting a better platform to evaluate Wembanyama. and so maybe and the other avenue that san antonio could potentially pursue if they want to they don't have to is using going back to those expiring filler contracts that we've talked about before san antonio has not only a bunch of like filler salaries that aren't that bad you know mcdermott and i i don't love Devonte graham but like Devonte graham and jetty osman who i like who they got in the in as a facilitator in the Cavs deal graham and, at least i think is non-guaranteed beyond this I th- year i think it's a light partial um and then uh-huh. reggie bullock who who is an easier sales pitch on a lot of these than most and and so not only do they have that but they also have a bunch of firsts like they have their own picks but then they have these extras from charlotte and toronto and chicago from the DeRozan deal moving forward and that's the big domino that i'm waiting on now is san antonio oklahoma city new orleans all have not only in terms of number but in some cases quality have all of these future assets but also have intriguing teams moving forward like they're not championship caliber as things exist right now and how do these front offices navigate navigate that dude because i that this is i've been positing this idea for about six months now that i think sam presti should make a big swing earlier rather than later i know that they want to evaluate chet holmgren and that really sucks that they had to wait this extra year because maybe they would have done it this summer if they knew what they had in chet but them and new orleans maybe the zion stuff was limiting there like these teams can do a wild all-in swing i don't know who the player is but they have the resources to make it happen and i don't 
don't again i don't know who that guy is but you can go after them and just fundamentally change where you are yeah, that's something that we talked about i think in regards to okc during the season last year yes. where i basically said they can make their version of the donovan mitchell trade that the Cavs made last offseason but the the issue is like who's the target like the the only guys that like theoretically are available out there like harden and lillard which i don't think they necessarily make sense for either harden or lillard and then it's like maybe Carl Towns, but is that the guy you want to go in for if you're them? Like it's just I think, you know, to a lesser extent the Knicks are in sort of the same situation where they have all these assets and they want to make a big move, but the guy to make the big move for is not really out there right now. But that doesn't mean that he won't be out there in six months or next offseason. Like this time two years ago, we didn't think that the following offseason, Gobert and Mitchell and DeJounte Murray would all be changing teams via trade. You know, like yeah. things can happen very quickly. They can happen very quickly. And they're also, especially for OKC, because they have Shea Gildas Alexander, like they could go harder after a complimentary guy. Like I, I think a lot of teams are probably pissed off that Mikhail Bridges is somewhere where he's not gettable, for, at least for right now. It doesn't seem like Brooklyn's doing anything. And OG and Anobi actually... I think it, we know at least one team that's very pissed off about that. <laughs> yes, we do. And so I think that maybe OG gets there, but OG and Anobi, he has the power to control things a little bit more. I talked about this with Bird Rights, where he can, you know, like if he want, if he's willing to resign with Oklahoma City, like maybe they do that kind of a move now because they get Bird Rights and everything else. And OKC's cap space moving forward is a little bit murky depending on you know like they because they could they could actually clear space if they wanted to but those you know the the donovan mitchell level or above like a player who has a credible chance to be one of the 20 best in the league they and is also like pre-prime or in or young prime like those players don't often hit the market it's it's a rare thing but it's a rare thing but it does happen and so where that goes will be key to watch yeah the guy that i was thinking about when i was thinking about this thing at the deadline or or before the deadline, I guess it was, was Devin Booker. But then Matt Ishbia bought the team and they traded for Kevin Durant and then they traded for Bradley Beal. And obviously that's not happening anytime soon. Um, but that would have been a guy that for so many of the teams looking for, you know, sort of the next guy, like he's in his prime. He's obviously really, really good. The Suns sort of seemed like they were going in the opposite direction. Um, that would have been the guy to target. But obviously that's not happening, I don't think, anytime soon. I think it could happen if a team sees Zach Levine as that player. I don't personally like i wouldn't see him as potentially fitting that description um but somebody might and i also wonder like i think we're probably a couple years away from it but like when some of these young guys that we've been excited about oh we're happen, gonna we're gonna get the luka Doncic sweepstakes my friends that's gonna happen luka is a potential one trey young of course is a potential one that could be coming down the pike yeah there will definitely be some definitely be some different negotiations coming down over the next couple years yeah um I'll tell you, our, our friend Mark Cuban is going to be thrilled with the coverage of the Luka Doncic sweepstakes. Oh, yeah, he's he's going to be he's definitely going to have a response to it. And there's something so much different and so different and so exciting for me about those situations when it's a player who is closer, who is who is more in that part of their career. Like so for I, I'm I'm a little bit less jazzed by the Harden and Lillard stuff, in part because it's just like the way these negotiations are going and they might 
linger. I think they, at this point, it looks like they will. But also because as great as Dame was this past year, like, you know, we, we, we expect Lord to be a great player, but never to be better than he was. Whereas like if a theoretical Jalen Brown trade happens or a Luka Doncic trade, it's like, oh, this affects things for a long time. And like, and there's yeah, the I possibility. Mean, it, it, it could be really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, you, in general, getting those guys heading into their third contract is, is better than in their fourth or even fifth contract. Because like in, heading into the third contract, you're getting essentially the prime years of their career, like 27 or 28 to 30 or 32 in that range. And like that's really the prime like anchoring a contender kind of years. Well, and to tie all this back to where we started at the very beginning, the biggest ripple that I think is going to happen from the new CBA and from how this year went is Gian- is you think about Giannis. And I think that Miami and Dallas, two teams we've discussed a lot on this podcast, they kind of kept their powder dry for the possibility that, he was, that, that Giannis was going to be available and oh, let's not, let's not spend these guys, let's not use cap space and all that. My advice to teams other than potentially LA and New York, and even even potentially them is that's not the way this is going to happen anymore and don't don't do that unless you have some really really good intel don't do it flying blind or anything like that and maybe maybe it's that basic but that's where this goes right now yeah i mean sometimes even if you have really good intel it might mean that they meant the city of new york and not the <laughs> new york picks you know very true um, very true it's entirely possible that your your intel is just wrong like i feel like unless you're unless you are literally the lakers i feel like you should not be planning for we're going to sign this guy in free agency. Like you can, it can be like an eventuality and a contingency. Like here's the way we can clear the cap space if we need to do it. But I wouldn't make your, we're all in on signing a free agent in the summer of X, your plan anymore. I just don't think that that is feasible as a way to, to plan to build the team. It, at least for right now, it doesn't seem like a particularly viable strategy, but I will thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me, man. I always appreciate it. Thanks so much to Jared Dubin for taking the time to come on. You can read his excellent work really wherever it is published. He, uh, With the unfortunate demise of 538, it's bouncing around a little bit, but he does excellent work. You can also follow him on various social media, including Dubin 5 on Twitter, Dubin 5 on Blue Sky. And I really love having him on, getting that perspective. And he, he is able to pull some examples off the cuff in a way. I, I have some, but he has other ones which can be extremely useful. And getting that perspective on, on on where things might be going is so valuable. And, you know, that's obviously something that I care a lot about. Also, if you're into it, his NFL work for CBS is fantastic. And uh, that should still be going. It's, it's really good there. So you can read Jared as well. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode. Real GM Radio is never going to come out on a specific day of the week, whether it's in-season or off-season, depends on my availability, guest availability. So that really does help. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen. And if we're not somewhere, let me know, and I can try to pass that to people who can fix it. It's not me, but other people can. You can also help other people find the show through ratings and reviews, through word of mouth, and really do appreciate that. But the most important thing you can do for this show and any of that has them is to check out our sponsors. For us, that is FanDuel, as I talked about during the read. You can check all of that out. You can also check out my other work, Dunked On, Dunked On Prime. We're at the off-season schedule, but still doing a lot of work, still doing a lot of good work. We're going to be getting into Summer League even more. We already did the top four players in the draft, but we'll be going significantly deeper into these rosters. We're going to try to do every player on a fully guaranteed roster contract for the year. That is our intention. We'll see if we get all the way there. And then, of course, off-season grades and everything else. 
also written work at The Athletic. I'm working on a couple of projects right now. Not sure which will get released when, but, you know, some point in the next little while. And, of course, my colleagues are doing excellent work as well. If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. I'm not always the greatest at replying, even if it's the offseason, I still have a lot going on, but that is not the promise I make. The promise I make is to read it. That's why it's feedback. And that is all for now. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Thank you.